This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones, broadcasting from the west side of Oahu. Guys, a couple of weeks ago, we reached number 53 on Chartable. And my goal is by July 1st to crack the top 50. To do that, I need your help. I need you to like our show, subscribe to our show, and write a little review of our show and share it. If you do that, that really helps our show grow in the ratings. And we have an ambitious goal. When the COVID shutdown happened and I had to put my movies on pause, I said through my writing and through my podcast, I want to amplify our influence. I want to amplify our message. And what is our message? It's the human person has an incomparable dignity, beauty, and worth. On this show, I attempt to be winsome and entertaining. And then when you're not paying attention, I slip the Imago Day in. Let me know if I'm doing a good job. Uh, shoot me an email at jason at movie2movement.com. Okay, guys, you have been hearing a lot about Chaz, Chazistan, Soymalia, this, this uh, several square block community inside Seattle that's been walled in. I put the bat call out. I wanted to interview somebody living in or around Chazistan. Thought I'd get a small business owner, maybe a Starbucks employee. But I never expected this. Through a friend, I was connected with the prominent and prestigious and very well-respected Jesuit priest, Father William Watson. He has an incredible apostolate, Sacred Story Institute. The link's in the show notes. I recommend you check it out. But what's happening in Chazistan is, is, is really what's happening in our country writ large. And so I think it's really important that we get a look inside Chazistan, inside the hearts of the people that are erecting these barricades around this community and a look into our own hearts. And nobody better for this than Father William Watson. This episode is being brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project, standing in solidarity with the most vulnerable people in the world, the most vulnerable time in their life. Today, it's the people in Chazistan, right? Strangely enough, inside Seattle, sorrowful. Go to our website, thegreatcampaign.org. For a donation of $20 or more, you get a copy of our book for free. That book is our mission, The Race to Save Our Century. I wrote with John Zmirak. That book took me 20 years to write, How to Order Our Lives to Leave Our Posterity, A Culture of Life, Love, and Beauty. And John and I mined the treasures of history, the experiences of the saints, the great thinkers of two millennia. It's all in that book. Eric Metaxas said, the race to save our century has the best reading list. Just buy it for the reading list. And I agree with that. So that's the race to save our century. You get that for free, a donation of any kind, $20 or more uh, to the Vulnerable People Project, which is a program of movie to movement. But let's just, that's the longest sales pitch I ever did for my book. Let's get on with the interview. Father William M. Watson from Seattle. His apostolate is Sacred Story Institute, and we're talking about Chaz. Aloha, Father Bill Watson. Welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Thank you, Jason. Here from Seattle. It's a cloudy day in Seattle, a little bit rainy, a typical weather. We call it the January here in Seattle. January in Seattle, it's gloomy in more right. ways than one. Now, I'm in Honolulu where it's sunny and there's not a cloud in the sky, which is normal here, too. So we both are living in our typical weather day. That's right. That's right. Now, I'm grateful. I put out a call yesterday on social media that I was looking to interview somebody in Seattle that had direct contact with this new country of Chaz, Chazistan or Soymalia. <laughs> I've heard a lot of good names. <laughs> and... Uh, and I was, you know, thinking I might get a business owner or a friend of a friend, and I was so grateful that a mutual friend of ours connected us, and, and you are a, a Jesuit priest, you're a Catholic priest, and you yeah. are with an apostolate called Sacred Story Institute, and I'm a storyteller, that's what I do for a living. So Great. this is a double blessing, really, for me. 
Terrific. Good. Yeah, I'm a Jesuit. Uh, yesterday was the Feast of Corpus Christi at the Catholic Church. It was the 35th uh, anniversary of my first Mass as a priest, so I'm grateful for that. And uh, I entered the Jesuits, and I've been doing this work uh, out of Seattle, this institute. Uh, I, I'm a uh, 501c3 nonprofit. i got my own board of directors. And um, my short career history is uh, Georgetown University for uh, 12 years, and then I was uh, vice president at Gonzaga University in Spokane. I worked with some of our papal universities in Rome uh, for fundraising, and I started Sacred Story Institute in 2012 to bring the uh, knowledge that I had gained from using Ignatian spirituality, which is probably one of the most popular uh, Catholic spiritualities transportable into the Protestant world uh, in the history of Christianity. So using uh, the disciplines of Ignatian spirituality to create uh, learning and healing methodologies for children, young adults, and adults. Well, I'm grateful for that. I started several, maybe 20 years ago, even before I was Catholic. I'm an adult convert. After reading the, oh, the spiritual, really? yeah, I am, yeah. And after reading the spiritual exercises of Saint Ignatius, oftentimes, maybe half of the time, every night when I close my eyes and I go to sleep, I'll, I'll try to go through one of the exercises. So I'm, I'm grateful Terrific. for you, and I'm grateful for you doing that. You know, especially as as an adult convert. Um, Wonderful. And how old were you when you? How old were you when uh, this transformation took place? Well, it started, you know, at seventeen years old. Actually, when I was sixteen, I, my high school girlfriend uh, rode her bike several miles to my house to wake me up with the words "I'm pregnant," and it was two days before my seventeenth birthday. So oh on my, my birthday, goodness. we joined. I joined the army, and she hid her pregnancy. But her father found out she was pregnant about two weeks before I was to come home from basic training, and we wanted to tell everybody, and he beat her up and forced her to have an abortion. And oh my gosh. And I was an Ayn Rand objectivist atheist, but very pro-life. And that abortion sort of really incited in me. It was my call to adventure to want to defend the vulnerable from the child in the womb, especially from violence. And my wow. real interest in the source and nature of human dignity. But I was really an atheist until my late twenties in grad school, starting to read Sartre and Nietzsche and Freud they did a good job of undermining any hope for this vision of the human person that I, I saw. And I, and I really came to understand it was Christian anthropology that I saw as self-evident. So maybe I should look at Christianity with um, an open mind. My high school girlfriend's father was a very prominent and publicly devout Catholic. So, yeah. so Catholicism to me was shut off right away. You know, it was just a bunch of okay. hypocrites and, sure. and, but you know, when I read the, the Gospels and then started reading the Church Fathers, if you really do that with an open mind, you're going to end up Catholic. I think. I, I think you, you have to have you have to have what you had too. You have to have an open heart. I, I worked in universities for um, and had contact with them for much of the last you know 35 years, and I've had the many experiences where I can uh, win. Uh, a conversation, an argument on point of fact, the other person knows it, but it doesn't change her or his opinion. And I realized that if the heart is wounded and is locked up, uh, then it's not going to allow the mind to have a new idea. And so that's why I decided to spend my time not doing intellectual work, but doing uh, how can I reach people's hearts? where they can get healed to open themselves, you know, to a new horizon for what might be possible. So you've really got to get to the heart and it sounds like your heart was ready for it and it and you had the capacity then to change your intellectual horizons based on that. But a lot of people are really locked in a, uh, uh, a fixed idea, as the French would say, they fixe, that you can't get out of it. You're locked in an ideology and you're you're well defended from it. Usually, my, in my experience, from uh, uh, a damaging experience that happened earlier in life that you can't access and that you've kind of crusted your heart over to just to protect yourself. So it's a very interesting process. So good for you that that experience at 17 kind of really opened you up to something, you know, almost, you know, 12 years later to change your life. It did. Now I hear the sirens behind you. I guess that's been a common uh, sound lately, Father. Yeah, yeah. I, I told uh, friends of mine in New York, I feel like I'm living in Mogadishu from the movies in terms of helicopters flying over and sirens. And 
but I am also on a busy thoroughfare here between two major hospitals in Seattle, Harborview and Swedish hospitals. So uh, it's a, kind of an ambulance alley along with police, fire trucks. But right outside my window here, I'm looking at uh, the parking lot of the fitness center at Seattle University. That's my Jesuit community. And that was kind of the congregating place for the uh, police cruisers and the armored uh, police uh, vehicles uh, for the riots for the last week. So we're kind of pretty much close to it. So my office and my community were about uh, two to three blocks out of the Chaz area, the Chaz zone, the new country. So you're you're two to three blocks from this new country that was founded by these, uh, I guess, predominantly white uh, colonists, imperialist invaders. That are taking land that's not theirs. Is that what's happening, Father? So close well, to it's, you. It's so close. It is such a mixed bag of people. I just I just had lunch at the Jesuit community, and I drove around the perimeter of Chaz before coming back. And uh, uh, it, the you know there is it's unfortunate. The, this is a very uh, uh, diverse part of Seattle. So the Capitol Hill neighborhood. Uh, is very hipster, a lot of uh, tattoo parlors. It's gotten very gentrified since 2010. A lot of condos going in, a lot of Amazon, Microsoft people in these new condo buildings, a lot of high-end restaurants. And it's this area that's been cordoned off, and you drive through it now, almost every single business, you know, two blocks out of the zone, as well as everything in it, is all boarded up. And it looks like the worst graffiti you ever saw in the worst days of New York City. And so there's there's a there's a, an ugliness to it, and it's magnified, of course, on a cloudy, rainy day like we're having today. But it's quite something. And the uh, drugstore that I go to, which is two blocks out of uh, the, the new country, Chaz um, Bartels, it's all boarded up. And they have a sign up there that says, "We no longer are selling cigarettes or alcohol." They had all their windows smashed out. It's all boarded up now. There is a Ferrari Maserati deal uh, dealership right inside the border of Jazz. Oh my! That, oh that, my! That had oh, well, it just tells you kind of the the, the high end nature. So of the people the, are there? Uh, are there area. homes in there? Is it just a business district, or are there a lot of homes? Like how many no, people live a, in Jazz? They say that there are about six hundred condominiums and houses within the cordoned off area that you can't really get into unless. They have kind of like perimeter check people. So when I drove around, like uh, uh, it, it extended actually two blocks further uh, to the east than I thought it had. But there were these two huge pickups, all uh, with graffiti spray paint on them. Um, and people there kind of nodding and, you know, waving at you with, uh, with masks on. Uh, but it, did, it does look like a third world country from the perimeter. So uh, it's, there's, uh, it's, it seems a little chaotic and a little disordered. Uh, there are peaceful elements, but then there's also the endemic homeless population that you have in the area. There's always been a lot of drugs here on Capitol Hill. Uh, so you typically walk around the neighborhood and you will um, almost all the time usually smell marijuana and things like that, or there are sometimes needles on the sidewalk. And there's a pretty big homeless problem in the Seattle area. So, so as a Catholic priest, so, Father, as you're looking at this, I tweeted yesterday that I know it's sinful, but I, am, I, I get so much enjoyment from watching the Chaz videos. And, and, what, I meant, and what I meant by that is it's, it's pleasant to see people suffer the consequences for their actions. I have to confess that, that, that they're playing life like a game, game. I've been in Iraq with the Peshmerga as they were pushing ISIS out of the Nineveh mm-hmm. Plains, our homeland in many ways, the sort of the birthplace of there have been churches there since the first century. And so I've stood in town after town that was rubble and the consequences of of our regime changed war and their hasty withdrawal from Iraq uh, created a vacuum that led to this. Now we see people, you know, playing the role of revolutionary, but then the game, it went from sort of being a game to real. And now if you go on Instagram, you see these people living in the consequences of their actions. And I, I, is it sinful for me to take pleasure in that, Father? <laughs> well, the uh, 
Uh, I'll leave that between you and your confessor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I, we could have we could do a confession when the show's over if you want. So. Okay, Father. Uh, thank but you. but what you know, one of the things that you're seeing is there's there's I think there was a lot of naivete. I think there was a lot of passion, a lot of energy, not very reflective. And then there were elements in there that were um, that felt to me. You know, there's kind of the peaceful people who want change over a, an incendiary video that everybody, I think, condemned worldwide. Uh, and then there's a, an element of the, the Antifa and the attorney general said it was a witch's brew of, of groups. You know, said there were left wing groups masquerading as right wing groups. And this is nationwide now. And white wing groups masquerading as left wing groups and then everything in between. And they're trying to get it all sorted out. But I think there's a little bit of that here in this little six block area of Seattle. And it's hard to know who really is in charge. Uh, and I think it's a work in progress for them. So you have parts of the park, the public park there, Carl Anderson Park, uh, which have been, you know, tilled up, you know, and they're planting kale and things like that. And then there's a Of lot course of it's kale, Father. You didn't have to kale. tell us. Well, it's organic, too. It's so, it's so in <laughs> vogue right now, kale. Okay. <laughs> If we're 20 years ago, it would be eggplants. But today it's kale. All right. And they're, kale, right. Okay. All right. So, so it's, I, think, I think it's a real mixed bag. I think there is probably maybe a 10% violent element and an 80% uh, or maybe a 60% uh, people trying to do something positive. And then there's 20% homeless and drug addicted and, you know, uh, uh, people who want to rob properties and smash windows. It's, re- it's very, very hard to kind of get your hands around what's really happening. So Now, you see these people. Over, how long have you lived here, Father? I've lived in Seattle since 2009, so 11, uh, 10 or 11 years. So. so a lot of these people that are, that are the mischief makers in Chaz, you've, you've seen them walking their dogs, carrying their yoga mats off to yoga, Heading off to Amazon with a latte, you know, I, whatever they do, I right. don't know. And it's Starbucks country, Starbucks home, 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 home city here, Amazon home city. Yeah, so there you have it. The the heartbeat, the capital of neoliberalism in the world, Seattle. And as individuals, so. they're they're just kind, loving, thoughtful, decent people. They would never say a harsh word to you. And what is the cause of this spasm of chaos and thoughtlessness and cruelty and violence. Do you, I mean, as a priest, you just look at them and, and ask, ask yourself, what is going on? Well, there is, um, I did a, a little over a week ago uh, at the beginning of the, the riots, uh, not so much the, the marches, but the riots, the looting and the burning uh, it became very, uh, it was, it was a very alarming to me. It felt very much out of control. It was also here in Seattle. And there was what I would call a very menacing element to it. And it's like you could go outside and you, you know, you could get, you know, for somebody who was totally impassioned and inflamed, you now like get a brick thrown in your head. Uh, and there was an element to it that felt so out of control. I did a short little video. I have it on my, my uh, website. I, I uh, tweeted it out to uh, and Instagrammed it, and we did a little uh, uh, newsletter post. And I called it, Serve uh, the Prince of Peace, Not the Lord of Chaos. Because there was so much chaos in this and, and agitation and so much energy behind kind of a very menacing element. It felt very much out of control. and. Uh, when I began my work, uh, one of the great Jesuit uh, spiritual people in the United States, who's coming right towards the end of his life, but he was one of the people who read my doctoral dissertation and wrote uh, an introduction to my book, Sacred Story, back in 2012. And he, he wrote this as part of the foreword, and at the time, I was kind of perplexed. It didn't quite um, make sense to me, but let me just read this little bit, and I think as it really kind of captures some of what I was feeling in terms of the menacing element of what was happening, not the people who were legitimately protesting and wanting change for racial injustice. And this is what George Ashenbrenner wrote. He said, he said, the most dangerous issue confronting our culture is to learn to deal with violent, sudden, and explosive impulses. Though we can unhealthily try to squelch these strong feelings, such violent, explosive, 
simmer in all of our hearts and flail out beyond our control without realizing such explosive power resides within us or without an ability to control such eruptions, we all face disaster. Learning to control these violent impulses is the greatest challenge facing our families, our culture, and our world. We read of this disaster in our newspapers, police reports, and various electronic images. From international wars to individual suicide, these human explosives kill and destroy people more and more. In many ways, these sudden violent eruptions are the worst issue facing our families and our culture. So I read that as a part of my little my little video, my five-minute video, That's Serve perfect. the Prince of Peace, Not the Lord of Chaos. I hope that went viral. That's perfect. But it, it, it really does capture it, and and, and uh, uh, Father Ashenbrenner said, you know, that the that the purpose of the spiritual discipline that I focus on in Saint Ignatius, the examination of conscience, is to get one inside of oneself to examine these disruptive causes, so that you are going to respond appropriately and not react inappropriately to the events in your life. And uh, and one of the things he goes on to the next paragraph and says, you know, one of the big problems is because the family has broken apart so much that parents no longer are really the ones who are being able to teach their children, you know, how to manage their emotions properly. And we have that we have a widespread um, breakdown of, uh, of family uh, across the country. And that really is we're not going to find <coughs> peace until we can kind of re-knit the local fabric of the family. Uh, you're not going to find a top-down solution from government to bring about justice. It really has to be kind of a ground-up principle, you know, through uh, a good family structure network, you know, where kids have a mom and a dad and a stable background and uh, hope for the future and things like that. One of the other things that came to me, Jason, in light of this was a great quote from Flannery O'Connor from uh, a book called Mystery and Manners, Occasional Prose. Uh, and this is in light of um, the possibility that something like Nazism uh, or communism can take over a country even like the United States. We think it's totally impossible. We've been there, done that. History shows us it's no good. Uh, but there's always the possibility that something like this could rise again. Uh, even within a sophisticated democracy uh, like the United States and the West. And this is what uh, Flannery O'Connor said, and she uses the word uh, tenderness. I would use, uh, I replace it. Let me read it, and then I'll just kind of give you my interpretation of it. She said, if other ages felt less, they saw more, even though they saw with the blind, prophetical, unsentimental eye of acceptance, which is to say of faith. In the absence of this faith now, we govern by tenderness. It is a tenderness which long cut off from the person of Christ is wrapped in theory. When tenderness is detached from the source of tenderness, its logical outcome is terror. It ends in forced labor camps and in the fumes of the gas chamber. And what I think she means by that very, very short, powerful quote is that when you untether uh, any, uh, untether your life or your society from any type of moral imperative or objective truth. Uh, she said, then it gets wrapped in theory. And then the Pope has gone against, you know, gender theory and this and that. So all these theoretical things, which are looking at there's difference in life and all differences are of equal value. That reminds and me that, that we're supposed to. Yeah, Father, that quote reminds you know, me of, um, what Rene Girard says that, and the, and the, age and the ages after the gospel that you can no longer shamelessly scapegoat openly scapegoat but that you have right. to clothe it in a concern for the vulnerable you have to clothe it in thoughtfulness right. for a victim and he says that that isn't genuine solidarity that's victimism that's feigning concern for the vulnerable to be violent to gain power right. to gain wealth and i think that's what we're seeing now is this chaotic violent eruption of victimism, which begins with a noble sentiment, but because of sloth, collapses into what Flannery O'Connor clearly said is tyranny. And it, so it begins with the with the the hope of uh, of 
positive outcome. But as St. Ignatius said, the uh, the enemy of human nature, his uh, powerful uh, name for Satan, the enemy of human nature oftentimes acts as an angel of light. So people can be uh, consciously or unconsciously deceived by what appears to be a good without seeing to the destruction to which it's leading. So what you have now is you have the desire for tolerance and acceptance and compassion, what Flannery O'Connor calls tenderness. But when you untether it from any objective anchor, then everything is of equal value. Uh, and that tenderness then uh, leads to a, site, a type of tyranny, uh, which then leads to, as she says, you know, the forced labor camps and the fumes of the gas chamber. Because you know, I was talking to some of my Jesuit brothers a couple of days ago. I said, well, just remember, you know, after the French Revolution, we had the reign of terror. So once the revolution is complete, you have to get rid of all the people who were perceived as being the institutional carriers of the, of the sin of this or that ism and to remove them. And I'm uh, uh, old enough to remember the Pol Pot regime in Cambodia and the two million you know, intellectuals and people who were killed. And, and you kind of see it in the destruction of monuments and things like that, trying to, trying to purge, uh, you know, your, your history and of your city of any vestige of evil or of darkness. But uh, as a priest, you know, and, and hearing confessions for 35 years, I think one of the biggest challenges that people have who are trying to honestly grow in goodness and holiness is overcoming one of two temptations. One, to see yourself as all good, where you don't really need any help. And the other one is to see yourself as all evil, that you're just, you're just, you're inherently wretched, you have no goodness about you, and you're just bad. And each of those leads to a different type of sin. Uh, and the first one, you know, Ignatius, you know, posited what the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, who considered themselves righteous. Uh, and they could not see the fact that they were basically condemning the incarnate uh, son of the of the of the uh, the, the incarnate son of God the Father. Uh, that they were calling him Beelzebub, and they were convinced of their righteousness, and they were blind. Uh, but on the other hand, you can you can you can so denigrate yourself that you have no goodness uh, that you can't see anything good about yourself, which can lead you to. Uh, kind of a suicidal despair and suicide. And what you have in kind of this, uh, kind of this cultural moment right now is that you have these two different tendencies. Some may see themselves as all good and others as all bad, but you can also extrapolate that too to the culture. So you can say that the culture is systemically evil or corrupt to the core and this, this institution has to be totally dismantled. Uh, because there's, it has no hope of being redeemed. Uh, and that is a false way of looking at it. Uh, you have to see that there is evil struck through every human heart and every institution that any set of human hearts has ever built. And that it needs to be recognized for the darkness that's there so that the possibility of growth personally and institutionally is possible. You don't suddenly just say, oh, my God, there's this sin here and we've got to destroy and to mutilate and to kill this person or this institution, um, because that really is what the Lord of Chaos wants. He wants everything blown up, everything destroyed, everyone at each other's throats, everyone mistrusting and hating each other. And there is that possibility in this moment, unless we're very, very careful and discerning, step back and have a dispassionate assessment of where we are personally and culturally. Well, that's the challenge, though, isn't it, Father? I mean, I'm a passionate person. I was a very violent youth. I got in fights almost every day from about five to the eighth grade, and then maybe just one a week in high this, school. This isn't part of your confession. This is not a part of the confession. Not a part of my confession. No, it's okay, just, very and, you know, I, I'm quick-tempered. I, I see, you know, I'm like, what would happen if Chaz Town came to my neighborhood? God forbid. And, but I see in this as we're ha really a collapse into tyranny and totalitarianism. I see in this, this is a, a, a spiritual exercise. I've been quite frustrated at so many Catholic leaders 
who from the very beginning of the shutdown, my very first concern going back to when Italy was shutting down was that if the West, the rest of the world followed Italy's lead in this sort of ham-fisted shutdown, it would lead to uh, a, a contraction in food production and distribution, and we would see uh, epic famines. And so I started writing about that three months ago. Now, yeah. now we're finding, you know, major publications are reporting that famine is already arriving in parts of the world, and that this, according yeah. to David Beasley, could be the worst year of famine since World War II. Right. I don't know why we're not talking about that every day, all day. We're talking hundreds of millions of people. And I'm hearing- And hundreds of millions of, yeah, hundreds of, millions of people in China, too. You know, all of the people in prison camps and all the people who are having their organs harvested and the, the threat to the people of Hong Kong and the implicit threats being made toward Taiwan. Uh, that the Chinese Communist Party is uh, propagating. So we've lost sight of the higher picture right, Father. of what's and it, going on. We're, we're getting caught down in, in, the, in the street fight and missing the bigger 30,000-foot the bigger 30, uh, uh, analysis of where we are. Right, as the freest, most prosperous Catholics in the world. So then in the midst of that, plus then in the States here, Catholics can't get sacraments. People are dying without confession or last rites. And I'm hearing Catholics, famous, powerful, influential Catholics saying, this is such a great time to bond with your family. And now you can teach your son how to fly a kite and blah, 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 blah. And meanwhile, businesses are dying. Communities are dying. The world's collapsing into famine. Three million Uyghur in concentration camps. Thousands of, of people in Hong Kong being just disappeared. Uh, very pious, devout Catholics um, dying without access to the sacraments. And yeah. so how do we, how do we as Catholics... As a, as a Jesuit priest who spent his life meditating on Ignatian spirituality, how can this be a spiritual exercise for us that also leads to action, to love well, and solidarity, the vulnerable, truly in our community? Well, first, uh, first of all, was toward the end of his life, St. Ignatius said he thought that the, the worst sin that somebody could commit was a lack of gratitude. And all of his spiritual exercises and his opening movement of the examination of conscience begin with that uh, gift of recognizing the gift given, you know, totally free from God, you know, of life and love to us. And that forgetting that, uh, that we can then get a very distorted picture of our own lives and of the world. Uh, and you, you can go back into the Psalms, you know, when Israel was in captivity in Babylon or whatever, and they're, 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 talking about how horrible things are, but then they do an act of grateful remembering. We remember when the Lord brought us out of Egypt. We remember when he did this. We remember his power and his glory. So it's the remembering of God's glory and fidelity in the past that can rescue us from a despair and an anxiety and a hopelessness in any present moment, whatever it is, personally or individually. Secondly, in terms of looking at what's happening, there's always evil, there's always institutional evil, there's always family violence that's going to happen. Uh, but if you're a person of faith and you have a capacity to turn toward God, you can see that no matter how awful things are, you can pray and you can have profound hope that God is going to write this uh, and and take what was bad and make it even better than it could have been had this evil not been perpetrated. And that is the that is the mystery that you look at anytime you see uh, uh, a crucified Christ on a cross. That God the Father takes the most heinous crime in the cosmos, the execution of the second person of the divine Trinity, and crafts it and transforms it into the salvation of the human race. So an individual can look at his or her life or their cultural moment or the world at war. You know, C.S. Lewis was, you know, inspired by the violence of the Second World War in terms of a lot of his writings and his writing out of that. So you can, you can look at that and see that God can write it all towards good. And so having hope right now in this time of, you know, uh, very dicey uh, emotions and um, political tensions and economic frailty and possibility of mass societal collapse and financial meltdown, that as awful as it is and as much evil as can come from it, 
that God can do something powerful. So I simply have to know for myself what I am being asked to do by God. And that does require a discerning heart. It requires uh, some quiet each day where I turn my heart to God. Uh, and I also have to pray that God take this moment and transform hearts. One of my prayers, one of my daily prayers, Jason, is this. I pray that uh, through the power of God, that God can unmask the face of true evil in the world. You know, who are the puppet masters who are the real bad guys, who are manipulating events and uh, and seeding, you know, this country or that institution with, with, with uh, kind of webs of darkness to dismantle and to destroy. I pray that the that the true perpetrators of evil be unmasked and that the innocent be protected. God hears those prayers. That's a beautiful so, prayer, Father, because that's my question. You know, is right. this some sort of just natural mimetic contagion, or are there people thoughtfully prodding, like you said, people who are despairing to self-destruction? And that's well, I, 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 yeah, I think you know the. Uh, let let me just you know I had uh, kind of my my own. I was uh, a Catholic and a priest and a Jesuit at the time, but I had kind of an adult conversion back in nineteen ninety four when I was doing my thirty day uh, spiritual exercises in Northern Ireland, and I had kind of three uh, wake up calls, and one of them was in terms of the world. Uh, and that the world was going to be undergoing some type of very profound change. And uh, interestingly, you know, on March 9th, you know, right before the pandemic was announced, I had turned my TV off. I've got a, uh, a TV that turns into a uh, kind of artwork when it's off. And I had it set up. The uh, artwork was a 16th century uh, uh, flower still life. And so that had been there for a month. So I turned my TV off on the 9th of March, getting ready to go to bed. And a uh, an image of uh, the Blessed Mother and two angels, which I learned out later was a Fra Angelica um, uh, fresco, was my screensaver. And I just totally took me by surprise. Uh, but I remembered back in 1994 on that retreat that I was introduced to the Blessed Mother, and I also had this kind of mystical experience that sometime in the future, the world would undergo profound change. And my heart said to me, uh-oh, pay attention. Maybe this, maybe we're, maybe the stage lights are going up right now. But anyway, my experience about the world, this is what I uh, wrote in a uh, forward to my uh, little book uh, on practical prayer called Inviting God into Your Life that evil can quietly work itself into every system, structure, religion, and life. Even a democratic society can be caught off guard. Self-righteousness, wealth, pleasure, laziness can dull the senses, making us forget what true joy feels like. The very engines of material and scientific progress can easily morph into destructive forms of economic or technological totalitarianism. And if history is any guide, we will be utterly surprised when overcome by evil's resurgence, since spiritual lassitude hides evil's evolution in our lives, the church, and in the world. Evil is untiringly ambitious. The church and we in our individual Christian lives must therefore be people of faith grounded in Christ and untiringly discerning. So yes, I do believe in incarnate force of evil. I do believe that there are people who consciously cooperate with it and that there's a lot of other people who think they're doing good who may unconsciously be cooperating with it, which is why spiritual discernment is of the essence and why I've dedicated you know, this institute to helping people kind of get in touch with these interior movements in their lives uh, through Ignatian spirituality. You know, and Father, that's who my heart breaks for, those people who think they're doing good but are really doing evil. They think they're being kind or just, but they're being unjust and cruel. And I use the what I call the Gerard rule, which is when you see a group of people forming and piling up rocks, find the person standing alone and stand next to them. If you do that, you can yeah. never, ever, ever go wrong. You will never feel guilt. Right. You'll never feel shame. You don't even have to ask questions. If a mob is forming right. and getting ready to throw rocks, you just stand with the person who they're throwing rocks at. Father, maybe I want to end okay. on this. It's in times okay. of social disruption in the West over the past couple of hundred years, 
there are two groups that conspiracy theories build around. Uh, the f- first group are the Jews, right? And the second group right. are Jesuits. So now <laughs> you're a Jesuit priest. Do you wear your Roman right. collar and walk around and they know you're a Jesuit? And has this been a problem? Uh, I do wear my Roman collar around and uh, it, it, it can be burdensome, you know, and for the priest, you know, this is, you know, this is what my reflection are in terms of, you know, that all cops are bad. Because, you know, I worked in our provincial offices during the beginning of the abuse crisis and my Jesuit province, which was then just the Oregon province, went through um, a bankruptcy process. Uh, and so I know what it feels like to be branded, you know, when you have a small percentage of people who did bad things and then everyone is painted with the same brush that you feel guilty and you, you feel like you can't you want to say, like, that wasn't me. I didn't do that. But, you know, in some ways, all of us are responsible for the fact that there's evil in the world and evil, evil in our own lives. Um, but the same thing is happening with the police. You know, there are some bad actors who did terrible things, but it doesn't mean all police are bad. Uh, so you've got to wear the collar around. It's, it's a, it's, you know, I think for a lot of people, I think it actually uh, brings about some consolation and hope. Anytime I go out with friends, uh, for a, a meal, I will always do a simple grace and, and a blessing will pray, even if it's kind of like, you know, kind of a secular restaurant. And some people are kind of taken aback, but other people are kind of, it kind of warms their heart. It's kind of like, I think I believe that too. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm glad I am seeing reflected in my secular world kind of these higher transcendental truths and beliefs and gentleness and kindness and love. So well, when I was, yeah, in, I wear my collar. When I, I, when I was an atheist father to see a priest, now I have so many priests as friends. I've lived with priests for several years, but as an atheist, when I saw priests, it, it kind of, it, um, it was uncanny. There was, I think any, I think it communicates the numinous and right. it's good to remind people of the numinous, whether they want to be reminded of it or not. And, right. you know, uh, Mark Twain said that an agnostic is an atheist who doesn't want to say it out loud because then God will hear him. That's one of my favorite quotes. <laughs> and, and when I reflect on my atheism, I say that an atheist is a theist that, calls, that says he's an atheist out loud because he wants God to hear him. Right. And, and I think all of us are, are groping and reaching for the numinous. And right. we don't want to be reminded of it sometimes. And when you wear the Roman collar, you comfort those who want to be, want that point. They want to see an arrow, a finger pointing to the transcendent. And those of us who don't, it can be agitating. I asked my mentor who's Jewish, what is the, what is the source of anti-Semitism? He said five words. He said it right off the cuff. He goes, five words. Thou shall not commit adultery. He said, if Moses would have left that off, (laughs) chiseled that off, we would have been fine. Everything would have been great. But now everyone, ever since that day, everyone's trying to kill us. What is the source of, of sort of the bigotry and conspiracy theories that have revolved around the Jesuits that we see erupt in times of crisis and social disorder? Well, the Jesuits are kind of considered the thought leaders. You know, they were, uh, you know, Ignatius was, it certainly didn't come from Ignatius. Uh, Ignatius was a, uh, really a son of the church and uh, very much grounded in defending the church. Um, but I think, I think Jesuits can be, uh, perceived as being, uh, well, the word Jesuitical, that, you know, you can take any truth and twist it. It's kind of like, you know, you know, people who did debate in high school or college, you can take any position on anything and, and win it. And so I think the, the, the negative perception of, uh, of some Jesuits is that they can kind of like take something which is untrue and make it look like it's true. And you have to really do an analysis in terms of whether that's the case or not, or if it's, or if it's prejudice coming at them. So, because people can be prejudiced, you know, I've, I've known, you know, priests who would be prejudiced towards me thinking that they think I am this or that kind of person, priest or Jesuit. Uh, but when they get to know me, then they, their assessment is different. So we really do have to get to know people to find out what they really do believe, what's in their hearts before we make rash judgments. And that's a part of the lesson that we need to learn at this cultural moment in terms of what we're living through in this country. Well, I'm grateful that I spent so much of my life making rash judgments 
and was wrong, and I'm addled by that, then now my prayer, I always pray that God gives me invincible grace to be thoughtful, to be kind, to be just. And I need invincible grace because if he gives me any wiggle room, uh, I will take it. (laughs) So that's my prayer. We all will. We all will. Yeah, like, no, don't give me any wiggle room. And then I wonder, like, what is he going to have to do to make it invincible? I'm afraid it might involve a runaway semi-truck or something. I don't know. But, Father... I thank you so much for coming You're on my show. Welcome. And can you, I've never done this on my show before. It's, we've got a huge audience and uh, I would say we're not even half Catholic uh, and maybe not even half Christian, but could you end uh, with a prayer for the people of Seattle and America? You know, what's that shocked me yesterday. A friend of mine from Iraq messaged me and said, brother, I'm praying for you and your country. And my mm. heart is breaking. And that really put everything in perspective for me. I thought that my friend who's lived through watching his country leveled um, is it sitting in his home worrying about me and my family. And, and that's where we are now. And it's, it's strange. It's just, I, you know, I can't even begin to, to, I can't wrap my mind around it, and I definitely can't produce words for it. But can you end in... Um, can you pray for our country and specifically for the people living in Chaz and the people in Seattle? I will, I will do that. And I'm going to pray because I'm a member of the Society of Jesus. I'm going to pray to Jesus. I don't want any non-Christians uh, to be offended uh, by that. And I'm also going to pray through the intercession of of Mary as Queen of Peace. So Jesus as Prince of Peace. And Father, real quick, can you explain that to folks? Like when we ask, when we say we're praying to Mary, what we really mean is we're asking her to pray with us. And pray for yeah, us. So, well, she, uh, Mary was the one who, through her yes, when the angel Gabriel visits her, where she chooses freely to cooperate with God's plan for the salvation of the world, to allow to be born in her uh, the second person of the Holy Trinity. So she's oftentimes called the mediatrix of graces because through her yes, and what it does is it elevates the human person that, you know, that, that Christ chose to be incarnate in our flesh, in our reality, through one of us. And she was the one who said yes to it. And if you look at the pictures in the stories of Pentecost, you know, the disciples are gathered around Mary as the Holy Spirit descends and, and forms the nascent church. So I don't pray to her as a god. I ask for her to intercede for me to her son, whom she knows and gave birth to and raised and saw crucified and die and rise again. So there's yeah. an intimacy there and a familiarity. So it's, it's not worshiping her as a God. She's a creature, like we're creatures. And... She's a creature, but she's also, as you know, the, uh, the uh, uh, council, I feel she's the mother of God. She's the mother of the second person of the Holy Trinity. Uh, but she's a mother, and she is concerned. And I do believe that God's going to give her a principal role in terms of the uh, the time of grace and transformation when Jesus comes back. You know, because I think I think the Trinity honors the person in the human family who enabled the possibility of Christ to become incarnate and redeemer of all humankind. Yeah, thank you. For explaining. I don't I don't want to create scandal for people who aren't Catholic and. And the book that helped me understand this when I was not Catholic was Fulton Sheen's The World's First Love, where yeah. he said that God didn't choose Mary. He had, he, he was, Mary was in his mind, as we all were, through all of eternity. And, and so right. that he had in his mind, he created her. It wasn't like he looked at us and said, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, catch a mother by the toe. He, right. he, out, of all, out of all eternity, the Trinity knew Mary and created her to be the creature that the second person of the Trinity would become man too. And then as Catholics, we ask her to pray for us. We do ask her to pray for us. And, and one of her principal spiritual virtues is humility. Uh, and that's her great prayer of the Magnificat, that, that God is going to confound the proud in their hearts and raise up the lowly. So, she is the one in the book of Revelation, uh, the woman, uh, you know, uh, with the stars and the moon, who through her humility will crush the head of Satan. Uh, so it's not, it's not an army that's going to defeat evil. 
it's going to be humility. And again, you reflect back on, on, on the great uh, peace leaders, Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, that they were people of peace and that they transformed not through violent revolution, but through their peacefulness and willing to kind of be, to accept the abuse and the evil of others. So she is that person. She is the, uh, she is kind of the model of humility, which is what an individual needs in order to open up to, uh, to God in his or her own life. There's a humility and a gentleness and a transparency and a vulnerability. So that's how I, I see her. And so let me just do this prayer for the Thank people you, of Chaz, which I, I can see Chaz from my window uh, in my office right here. So I, I raise my arms and I pray uh, in your name, Lord Jesus, Prince of Peace, to watch over all of your people, to help us to understand how you would act, how you would behave, how you would want us to love and to nurture each other. That you bring peace to this city, uh, peace to this neighborhood, and peace to everyone in the world in their hearts. And I invoke you, Mary, as queen of peace, as model of humility, a model Christian for all of us, to intercede to your son, the Prince of Peace, uh, as a mother for all the people in this neighborhood, in this city, and in our world. We give you thanks for hearing our prayers, for your gentle, kind uh, tenderness and care for us. And we, we affirm that you have heard our prayer and you will bring it about to the glory of the kingdom. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Father. You're going to be in, in, in my prayers. And uh, please pray for us and pray for our audience. And I hope... As you said, that through this tragic experience, we come out a more united country because uh, I think I think we will, and I think that is the I think that's the great possibility, and that 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 really does require individual human effort, and we really do need to invoke because, as Saint Paul said, that the real battle is between the principalities and powers; they're between spiritual forces, uh, and that we really need to pray that the Prince of Peace be the one who intervene on our behalf to quell people wittingly or unwittingly who are cooperating with forces of darkness. So. Amen. Well, Father, uh, thank you very much. I'm going to post your apostolate's website in our show notes and a link to your book on Amazon. And I hope I have you back again. I would be happy to, Jason. Nice to meet you. And I'd like to say a uh, shout out to your audience. May you be blessed wherever you are in the world. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Oh, 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 oh,